Hello and welcome back to the Northern Agenda podcast, the politics podcast which ignores the Westminster gossip and concentrates on the issues that really matter for the North. I'm Rob Parsons, Northern Agenda editor for Reach, the People Behind the Liverpool Echo and Huddersfield Examiner, and every day I write a daily politics newsletter about the North called the Northern Agenda. This podcast is where we can look into interesting topics in a bit more depth and chat with some leading experts about what's been happening this week. Now, the weather outside may be frightful, at least it is where I am in Leeds, with blizzards and biting winds, but hopefully this podcast will be insightful if you're interested in the future of the North's great cities, towns and everywhere in between. This week on the podcast, my guest is Stephen Patterson, who'll be a familiar name to many in the North East as the boss of Newcastle NE1, the body aiming to ensure the city fulfils its economic potential. I'll be asking him about how Newcastle has been bouncing back since the pandemic, how cities like his are being forced to change, and the impact of that controversial clean air zone. But first, it's been a busy week in politics, dominated by the row over Sue Gray going to work for Labour leader Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak's new bid to stop the votes. And as we record this podcast, it's being reported that the always controversial HS2 project may be delayed again to save money. Does this mean the arrival of high-speed rail into Manchester already not happening until the early 2040s, potentially, could be put back even further or maybe go into the long grass altogether? But there's lots of other stuff to talk about, isn't there? And we've got a great guest, Jack Shaw, Senior Research Fellow at the IPPR North Think Tank and someone who keeps a keen eye, I know, on the progress of levelling up in Whitehall and around the country. Jack, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Rob. Great to join you. Thank you for coming on. So shall we start by talking about the uh, next week's budget? Uh, With everything else that's going on, it's not got a huge amount of attention yet, I don't think. But Jeremy Hunt is giving his first big budget speech probably just after lunch next Thursday. And there's a whole host of reasons to be interested in it, I think, from a Northern perspective. Uh, I I think we'll be expecting to hear news of big, expanded uh, devolution deals for Andy Burnham in Greater Manchester will wait to see what kind of new powers and funding he might get. And also a bit more about the investment zones that first emerged under Liz Truss and were then uh, hastily uh, hastily redesigned after her short, uh, short lived premiership. And we're expected now to be focused on universities rather than left behind towns. Jack, what kind of things are you sort of looking out for? in the budget next week that might be of interest to the North and, you know, tackling regional inequalities? Yeah, well, you've touched on two of them, the Trailblazer deals and the investment zones. There are two other items, I think, on our agenda, at least. The third is the levelling up fund and whether or not the final tranche of that, there's a remaining £1 billion. And you might remember that lots of Northern authorities were unhappy with the allocations at last time round. And then the fourth and final issue is this new offlog. So the Office for Local Government and what that actually means for local authorities across um, the country. So I can take those in turn if that's helpful. Yeah, definitely. I mean, with the the levelling up fund, I guess the big controversy when the second round was announced was the fact that the government changed its mind halfway through deciding who they were going to give the money to and, and decided that if you got money being given regeneration cash in the first round, you were never going to get any in the second round. But the, the bidding authorities didn't didn't know that. So I guess it will be interesting to see if they do make an announcement who 
will be eligible for this this funding. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there are a couple of other moving parts in that piece as well, which is that at the Convention of the North, Michael Gove mentioned, and I think he was quite creative with his language here, he said, in the context of the levelling up fund around extending local government autonomy. So he didn't quite say devolution, but he suggested, and he mentioned simplifying funding allocations as well, he suggested that this final tranche might try to do something different, given that the government is effectively making investment available and the response is negative headlines uh, for it. The other point is that uh, the allocations process is quite opaque, and I'm sure we'll come on to this uh, throughout this podcast. But as part of that process, ministers have some level of discretion. And in some of the analysis that the government posted afterwards, it was clear that uh, parts of the North were due to get additional funding and the minister responsible decided to change that. So I think those two are, are, are equal concerns as well. I mean, in terms of um, the way that the government spends its money that comes under the levelling up umbrella, there was an interesting piece in the Financial Times this week, wasn't there? And, and we're also we're always going on about how, you know, scrutinising the way that the government decides which areas get what amounts of money. But it turns out that even once that process has happened, the levelling up department and the government in general are finding it hard to get that money out of the door and actually get it to the places where it's needed. I, I don't quite understand why why this is. Have you, have you got a better insight into what, what the problem is here? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so there are, again, there are a couple of moving parts. None of these are easy, uh, simple uh, challenges, I'm afraid. So the department is... Uh, struggling to get lots of this uh, funding out of the door, as you suggest. There's one very obvious reason, which is that local authorities have had their budgets significantly uh, reduced, and that means that they have challenges associated with capacity, expertise and resources and so forth. And the government has uh, introduced some measures to try and address this. So recently it had uh, announced a new uh, amount of uh, cash, six hundred sixty-five million, sorry, sixty-five million, um, to support local authorities to address those concerns. But I think it's there is a little bit of a blind spot in in this. Really, I think the government's perception is that the reason that these programs are not being delivered is because of local governments are failing to do so because of the reasons that I've just outlined. And actually, I think there are other reasons that the government should be focusing on rather than just the, the capacity and the capability of local authorities. So the two broader reasons, really, I think, are the wider context around inflation in particular and the government's response to that, but also the design of the centrally managed Whitehall programmes and the kind of per- perverse incentives that they create if we look at some of that spending in the round. So to give you some examples of of what might be contributory factors, the Shared uh, Prosperity Fund has been delayed, the Community Renewal Fund has been delayed. So those that lack of certainty, I think, has been a a challenge in terms of delivering programmes. Why has that been a challenge? Well, because in advance of these fundings being allocated, 
local authorities are doing lots of preparatory work. They are negotiating with uh, suppliers and contractors to deliver these programmes. They are taking people on. They are creating new jobs. And when the government delays a, 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 an amount of funding, what that means is that local authorities are having to renegotiate lots of this stuff. And so it's not a simple case of of it's taken three months extra, as in the case of the Community Renewal Fund, it was delayed for three months, but actually it took nine months to disentangle the complexity that that delay had created. So I think that's an issue um, that the government's not really addressing and the UK Shared Prosperity Fund is the latest example. Only in January it announced that funding. It was due to announce it far earlier. The second point I mentioned is around uh, inflation uh, and in particular, this kind of very Orwellian and timid approach, which is the government has said it will work with local authorities to reprofile it, which is code for kind of reduce its scope and size. Um, and that meant that has that has also taken additional time. And clearly, lots of local authorities don't have additional budgets to simply inject into these programs to keep them going. So when local authorities were bidding for them, and they were viable then, and then it's taken some months or longer to sign them off, they've soon become unviable. And so that's a challenge as well. And I think both of those in different ways speak to the fact that actually a a centrally managed approach exacerbates issues around delivery, and instead we should look to more devolved approaches. Yeah, I mean, that is a, a, a theme that we often seem to come back to on this podcast and in our in our newsletter the fact that if control over where the money is spent how it's spent uh was handed over to uh to mayors and local leaders uh more likely mayors i guess in 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 this in this case then the process would be a lot more satisfactory to all concerns how likely is it you think that we're going to hear some good news on that in in the budget specifically relating to uh greater manchester and andy burnham i think in the context of um, the trailblazer deals with Greater Manchester and, and the West Midlands, the idea of this single regeneration budget uh, or single departmental plans, whatever you might call it, uh, is a really good idea. It's going to give them more flexibility and that's going to be useful. I think the next question is that now we've got a package, whatever that looks like, we will find out in the budget for both of those combined authorities how long is it going to take to extend that to Liverpool City region and to all the other combined authorities in the north, which are, you know, equally as as mature now? They've they've not only just been created in the same way that county deals are coming online next year and the year after. They've been around for a couple of years, and we need to think about how we extend that um, to them. I think the second point is that the government has this what it calls a kind of rationalisation program of harmonising and bringing together lots of these funds because one of the challenges is that they are atomised into really small amounts in many cases and they're not delivering much value or impact. And so that could be on the cards as well. I think the government's been a little bit quiet about that, not necessarily expecting it to come out uh, in the detail of the budget, but perhaps it will follow shortly after. Now, there was an interesting insight this week or or perhaps an an alleged insight into uh, the way that government officials decide who gets money uh, and who who gets funding for vital projects in the um the cache of leaked whatsapp messages 
uh, revealed by the Telegraph and Matt Hancock. There was one particularly interesting one where his special advisor, uh, when they were talking about trying to keep wavering MPs in line on a, in a big uh, commons vote on coronavirus restrictions, Matt Hancock's advisor uh, suggested that Berry North MP James Daly could be persuaded to vote the right way. I don't think I'm mis- misquoting him here or mis- mis- presenting it in a misleading way. If uh, if the um, if they basically hung over his head the threat of not funding a uh, learning disability hub that uh, this MP had been calling for. I, I guess the thing to say about this is that there's no evidence that this threat was ever actually made to the MP himself, although it has to be said that this learning disability hub has not materialised, but the, the reason for it might not be straightforward. So it appears that when when government departments are deciding who gets money for vital local schemes, it's not just you know the a, a tick box or sort of a, a matrix of objective criteria they're looking at. Low politics often comes into it as well. I mean, is it, am I being naive to think that I don't know. Is this a widespread thing? Do you think, or is this is, is this is this just a isolated example, or maybe not reflective of how government works in general? Yeah, I mean, so the the case you identify is really interesting because I think we see it really transparently in those lockdown files, don't we? What the implication and suggestion of that is, and there are organisations organizations like the Public Accounts Committee that has looked at this issue and has recommended to the government that ministers where they do have discretion should do so without the knowledge of the local authority that they're looking at. And actually, the department rejected that recommendation. And that was last year. So that was before the second tranche that we witnessed. I think generally speaking, though, I'll go back to this issue of the kind of centrally managed opaqueness Uh, And I think actually, you know, the issue is that the existence of that opaqueness creates a void in transparency. And because the government hasn't created much clarity around how these decisions are made, there are, you know, parts of the electorate that will conclude that, you know, this is the politicisation of of levelling up and that actually, you know, we are investing in certain areas over others because of political reasons. Now, uh, it's obviously very difficult to say whether or not that's the case, um, but I think purely the perception of it is probably corrosive to our our democracy, and it's not the only example. So, of course, we've seen the Prime Minister mention in his leadership uh, bid about the allocation of, of formulas as well. The broader point I would make is that this is just more evidence that we need, you know, locally rooted places to be taking decisions about the issues that affect them. And again, I think it's, you know, it's it's why devolution is important, because actually, you know, ministers aren't necessarily well placed. They may be well intentioned, but they're not necessarily well placed to decide, you know, whether or not Berry is deserving of of some sort of facility over, you know, somewhere in Barnsley. And Barnsley, for that reason, has been really quite critical of the government and has suggested that it was looking at legal action previously because of that. It's not an ideal system, that is that is for sure. Now, why don't we move on to an area where 
uh, a local council has taken in the north has has uh, taken control over quite a big local issue. So in Cumbria, Cumbria County Council at the moment, and then there's a few district councils, but that is all going to change quite soon when two new unitary authorities are created to provide local services in that largely rural uh, part of the north. One of them is called Westmoreland and Furness. Uh, and one of the most interesting things that it, uh, it is doing is doubling council tax on second homes from uh, next financial year. Uh, and it's basically as part of an effort to uh, make housing more affordable for local residents and to reduce the number of people who only live in these areas, uh, you know, during during the holiday holiday season. That that one caught your eye, didn't it? What what's interesting about that one from your point of view? It is really interesting, and they're not the first council to do it. So North Yorkshire County Council announced similar plans last year. There has been particular local. Uh, outcry there for the same reason that you identify, which is that there is a housing crisis, but equally there are second homes in places that are, you know, these are, we're talking about towns and villages, we aren't talking about cities. So there's limited uh, housing supply and a limited ability to build new homes. So it is really interesting. So in terms of what's happened, a number of local authorities are setting their budgets at the moment. They've been setting their budgets over the last couple of weeks. And one of the opportunities they have, and I think they're thinking ahead here, is to increase council tax on second homes. Now, currently they don't have the power to do so, but the levelling up and regeneration bill, which is currently going through the House of Lords, once given that, once that's got royal assent, local authorities will be able to do that. So North Yorkshire has said that they intend to increase that council tax on second homes within the next two years, for example. That means extra cash in council's pockets to invest in services. And I think that's a fairly sensible and progressive approach. If you can afford a second home, you can probably afford a higher premium uh, of council tax. And as you suggest, some local authorities want to earmark that to invest in affordable housing to address the issue that second homes in part create. The reason I think that's particularly interesting is kind of twofold. First, lots of other places are doing it. So the Welsh government has already introduced legislation to enable Welsh local authorities to do so. It's actually quite common across uh, Europe. And so really, we are paying catch up in the levelling up and regeneration bill. And I think that's welcome. But second is the kind of wider context um, around the kind of physical devolution piece and the government has been quite timid on that front um, today and so I think this is perhaps you know a new tax raising power is just one of the small ways that we're beginning to move in that direction. Now at IPPR North of course we want the government to move uh, a lot quicker and faster but um, I think that's some some progress some tangible progress that we could at least look to once the bill has been passed. So should we finish with a bit of a lighter uh, look at a lighter story. Um, Eurovision Song Contest uh, coming to Liverpool in May this year. Things are moving quite quickly now. It's all starting to feel quite uh, real. We're just uh, not, not 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 that far away now. Tickets went on sale this week, and I think they sold out in about half an hour. And the uh, UK's entry, who is called May Muller, and she is singing a song which features tongue-in-cheek lyrics about a cheating ex-boyfriend and a propulsive dance beat. 
I'm reading this off uh, off my screen. Obviously, that's, those aren't, aren't my words, but uh, it's all sounding quite exciting, isn't it? And so I think it does. Uh, Liverpool is going to be the place to be for for the next few weeks. And I guess from a sort of politics and policy point of view, obviously, it's going to be amazing being in Liverpool uh, while. Eurovision is on and uh, it's going to create a lot of interest in the city but how and I suppose yeah there, there are other examples of of of, of this in the you know with art and with with sports and football and you know like the city of culture in in Hull for example um how do you convert the sort of cultural capital that you get from hosting a big event like this into uh sort of tangible improvements that people will improve the lives of not just people who are involved in the event but you know the wider city and the wider region is, is that even possible from 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 your, your view i mean really good really good point rob and obviously we've got leeds 2023 and bradford city of culture in 25 uh, coming up the horizon as well i mean the good thing about the city of culture in Hull is that it's happened and they've monitored and measured the progress that it's made. So we know, for example, that in the case of Hull actually increased, uh, or there is some evidence that increased pride in place, which is one of the missions in the uh, Leveling Up white paper, uh, for example. So we know that there are benefits to to these um, big events. More broadly, what I think is particularly interesting is that, as you say, you know, eyes are going to be turned to Liverpool for a period of time and there's an opportunity to capitalise on that and how do we do so and, and who, who crucially can do so. And I think what's quite interesting is that the devolution debate to date has largely been comprised around promoting economic growth in a relatively narrow sense of jobs and transport connectivity and skills. All of those are important and we absolutely need to do those. But culture really hasn't featured and actually culture-led regeneration is one dimension of, you know, ensuring that a place is thriving. And so I think with Eurovision in Liverpool, there is an opportunity now to have a broader conversation about what is it that the North can add to economic growth and what does it need and actually northern culture is something that is a kind of particular star quality in places in the north and there's a huge amount of uh, change that's happening so i think what we need is to think about how some of these decisions are uh, devolved to mayors tracy brabin and others have been speaking about this uh, recently and currently that hasn't been on the cards and so following the trailblazer deals and we if we were to ask ourselves what's next on the devolution front i think this this challenge here around culture-led regeneration is something that needs to be at the forefront of that that is certainly something to ponder uh while uh, in between uh, in between the songs eurovision while we're uh, all uh, judging judging and giving scores and so forth um jack shaw for my ppr no thank you so much for speaking to me today thank you for having me Now, it's no secret that Newcastle is home to some of the most vibrant culture, nightlife, art and business in the north of England and indeed the whole country. It has more independent restaurants per capita than anywhere else outside London, local bosses say, and is bucking the national trend 
on footfall thanks to its thriving nighttime economy. But with our relationship with our town and city centres shifting in recent years and very rapidly since the pandemic, will places like Newcastle need to adapt if they're to stay vibrant for the coming decades? One man who probably knows the answer to that is Stephen Patterson, the CEO of Newcastle NE1. That is the biggest example in the country of a business improvement district where businesses pay an additional tax or levy to fund local projects to boost the economy. So I really want to hear, Stephen, more about what's going on in Newcastle and how cities can sort of work within themselves to become a success. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on. So um, I I mentioned um, how Newcastle was bucking the national trend on footfall. Can you just give us a bit of a sort of a bit of a picture about how the city centre is doing in terms of, you know, getting people back in post pandemic, I guess, based on the data and also sort of the anecdotal evidence that you've you've seen? I think obviously uh, over the past few years, the pandemic really has been the big game changer, not just for Newcastle, but all cities. Um, and certainly for us, uh, we're, for, uh, we're really doing very well in terms of footfall. So at the minute, we're 6% up year on year. Um, and when you look at the stats, you know, uh, we're 16.5% we're uh, better than the national average. Um, and a staggering 52% better than our northeast average. So we're doing really well. I think the reasons for that are Newcastle is quite small, compact city. So we're really easy to get in and out of. Um, so for the most part, we haven't really had that big pushback from office uh, employees about coming back into the office because they're not having to do sort of, you know, hour, two-hour commutes every day to come into Newcastle. So we haven't really seen that pushback. Uh, And you mentioned in the introduction as well, we have a really vibrant nighttime economy and cultural sector. Uh, And I think certainly what we've seen, you know, when you speak to businesses is that after all of the lockdowns, COVID, I think people are really prioritising experiences over, uh, you know, um, kind of products when they're deciding how to spend the money. So, uh, yeah, we're seeing really strong double-digit growth in terms of our nighttime economy, which is brilliant. Um, But there's no doubt about it. When it comes to retail, we've essentially seen sort of five, ten years' worth of change in two years. COVID really has been a catalyst for a dramatic change uh, across the board on that side of things. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, where I am in Leeds, uh, Leeds is very different, uh, you know, from from what it was at the start of the pandemic. And I mean, my, my impression is that, you know, it, it's it, it, there are certain times of the week where it's a lot quieter when, when I, I do go in there. I mean, is, is Newcastle the same that it's sort of it's it's very busy at certain times and then perhaps a bit less busy than it used to be at other times of the week? Yeah, definitely. I think there's been there's a few different uh really pronounced changes in the city centre. I think the first one is office-based staff. I think most uh, office-based organisations now operate a a hybrid type of policy. Um, And uh, lo and behold, I think Mondays and Fridays don't seem to be that popular for office workers. So I think we've we've definitely seen reduced footfall from our office workers on Mondays and Fridays. And the second one, which I think is quite interesting, is 
that say with your 25-year-old and above or 35-year-old and above, they're definitely coming out in town and spending more money, but they're coming out earlier. So it's, uh, you know, what would have been going out in Newcastle on a Saturday night is that now actually uh, quite often the case will actually go for a day out in Newcastle. We'll start a lot earlier, but we'll be home a lot earlier. Um, so I think people, people are coming out earlier uh, on, on the social side of things, and we're definitely missing a lot of office employees on Mondays and Fridays. Uh, that's that's interesting. So they're, so they're starting earlier and finishing earlier. So I, I'm guessing, is that simply bad news for sort of nightclubs and sort of late night establishments or are they still doing still doing OK? It's 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 not bad news. It's just different. Um, I think that's the thing. If you walk up, say, Gray Street, which is perhaps our most prestigious street, you know, beautiful architecture with some of our finest, finest restaurants on it. You walk up that on a Saturday morning, say 10, 11 o'clock, and it'll be heaving, you know. So it's it's just it's changed it's changed the profile of when people are coming out. But all in all, actually, you know, our uh, hospitality industry and leisure they're they're up year on year, uh, and certainly if we're looking, you know, pre-pandemic 2019 as a comparator, I think we're seeing sort of double digit growth on that side of things. So. Uh, the pie's got bigger, so to speak. It's just different times. It sounds like things are going well in in Newcastle. But I mean, are there any things that would help you help Newcastle to thrive even more? Is there anything that you think that you know policymakers at a national or local level, if they could change that, then perhaps you might be seeing even even better numbers? Or is it all? Or are you happy with the sort of landscape that you're operating in at the moment? Perhaps unsurprisingly, representing 1,400 businesses in the city centre, I'd, I'd never be happy, never be happy. But uh, I think the the major thing for us is really what we've seen is sort of 30, 40 years of underinvestment, um, you know, princ- prin- principally coming via central and local government. And I think the, the government's uh, um, levelling up grants, I think, goes some way to that, but it's still feels very piecemeal. You know, you've got to pitch in on a project by project basis. Um, So I think what would help from a policy perspective is actually having a multi-year agreement in terms of ring-fenced, you know, CapEx investment for a specific area. I think that would really help the local authority in terms of being able to plan in a more strategic way. And... uh, Certainly in my time, you know, I've been with anyone for 14 years and I've never known a time where the city has received as much public or private sector investment. And the two very much like to move together. You know, the public sector investment matched with private kind of de-risks the proposition for the private sector. So I think if we had a multi-year deal in terms of capex investment in public realm transport those types of things i think that would deliver real dividends and of course we do have you know the prospect of an increased combined authority under a new mayor from the 1st of April, uh, 1st of may next year uh, which in itself brings a multi year funding uh, uh, to the region and i think that's really really positive and i think that would make a big difference and 
beyond that, uh, it's not just an issue for Newcastle, uh, it's an issue across the country as planning. There's no two ways about it. You know, I look at the city at the minute and the amount of investment that is literally just sitting in the planning pipeline is genuinely staggering. You know, if you look at our key side, we've got in excess of 850 million pounds worth of investment sitting in that kind of planning pipeline. And so I think, uh, you know, if, if government is really serious about targeting growth, the planning system has to be quicker. You know, you have to provide certainty to the market so that when they, when they, when they purchase a site, they know that within X number of X number of months or X number of years, they're going to be able to start building on that site. These are developments where the, the planning application has been lodged and everyone knows what they want to build, but it either hasn't gone through the, the, the planning process process yet or, or, it, or it has been approved, but it hasn't been built yet. I would say it's predominantly at the front end of that. Uh, so, you know, the kind of in the pre-app discussion stages and the planning discussion stages, uh, the planning application stages. Um, and I think that's that's the frustration is just the amount of, uh, I think over time, the planning system, you know, specific policies have been created to address specific needs without necessarily looking at the whole. And therefore, you quite often get plan, planning policies on specific developments that uh, uh, counteract each other. Uh, and those issues, no two ways about it, they take time to iron out uh, and come to a resolution on. So uh, obviously, I'm not a planning expert, but I think for me, on on the outside, looking at that, you see something in planning for two to four years, if not longer. Um, and I just think it's a wasted opportunity for the city. You know, that £850 million, if we could have that through the planning system within a guaranteed period of time, I think that would be brilliant. And looking at it from first inquiry to... Uh, actual decision as well, not just looking at from when the planning applications lodge, because there are obviously sort of guidelines on uh, that side of things in terms of determination, but looking at it from first contact all the way through to the decision being granted, I would say. Now, I'm just going to ask you about a few sort of more specific issues that relate to Newcastle, although I guess they have sort of wider implications as well. Um, so there's a shopping centre, isn't there, called Eldon Square Shopping Centre, in the yeah. city uh, centre, which uh, I gather has suffered badly uh, during the pandemic, it's lost some big tenants. And I mean, in terms, you were talking earlier about the sort of the mix between retail and other things that people might come into a city centre for. Is the the you know the, the situation with Elden Square is that sort of symptomatic of the fact that the city is moving to a different mix of sort of retail versus entertainment and 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 pubs and restaurants and so forth. Yeah, there's no doubt uh, Newcastle, like every city, is seeing a rapid change in, in terms of its retail environment. I would say that Eldon Square is actually doing uh, really well in terms of vacancy rates. Obviously, you mentioned Debenhams, which is a huge part of Eldon Square. Um, but uh, I think if you look at their vacancy rate, they are very low single-digit numbers. I think the national average is about 14% and about 18% for shopping centres. So it really gives you an idea of how well Eldon Square is doing. And I think that's 
purely because it's the most dominant in terms of uh, footfall uh, sort of retail centre in northeast England. Um, and in times of, say, uh, flux and uncertainty in the market, you very much see brands run, running to sort of safe harbours, you know, uh, sort of uh, where they're guaranteed a certain amount of footfall. Um, so Elvin Square Matone, I think, is doing uh, very well and in a strong position. But issues like the Debenham, Debenhams unit, which you mentioned, um, there's been a lot of interest in that site, and I do think there will be announcement made fairly soon on that. Uh, there's no two ways about it, though. I think experiences are very much a growth sector for the city. You know, things like escape rooms, axe throwing, you know, all, all manner of things, uh, you know, pub, pubs that are themed on darts uh, and the like. I think if, if you're delivering experience, that's definitely a growth sector at the minute. Uh, and beyond that, I would probably say mid-level uh, price point national brands on the restaurant side of things uh, are probably finding it challenging as well. Uh, or local entrepreneurs, I think, are very agile and fleet of foot and very good at capturing niche markets when it comes to food. Uh, and as you mentioned before, you know, we've got more restaurants per capita than any other city outside London. There's a really high degree of competition, um, but the sector is really th thriving as a result of that competition. So we are seeing changes, no, no doubt about it. Um, by and large, I would say the positive changes that needed to happen the room. I guess the other uh, big sort of political uh, issue in Newcastle, which uh, people outside the city might know about, is the introduction of a, uh, a clean air zone. So basically, a, a zone in in the city in into which uh, polluting vehicles will be charged uh, if they enter. It's, it, Newcastle is not the first place in the country to have one of these. There's one in uh, Bradford, I think, one in Sheffield that's going to be. Uh, that's been introduced as well. Greater Manchester was going to uh, introduce one that covered the entire Greater Manchester region, but they uh, that's now not 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 going to happen. So, in terms of you know the things that you're interested in, sort of footfall and people coming into the city centre, has that has it made any difference? The fact that uh, you know polluting vehicles are now being charged, or has it actually been a been a, a good thing? Because I guess it's going to you know presumably clean up the air in the city centre. I think, being blunt about it, I think it could have been absolutely catastrophic for the city. I think the major thing, uh, the major reason why it, it isn't uh, or hasn't been really bad for the city centre is that private vehicles aren't charged. It uh, is a charge that only applies to commercial vehicles, uh, you know, public transport providers, um, taxis, heavy goods vehicles, that type of thing. Um, so it hasn't hit people coming in, uh, you know, for office work or people coming in to work. And it hasn't hit um, customers coming into uh, the city to shop, eat, socialize, that side of things. Um, and I think it was um, very much when we did our business consultations on that, I expected our businesses would be up in arms about it. You know, you just read the headline and it sounds horrific, doesn't it? But uh, it was really encouraging to see how all of them were like, we need to have better air quality. It was absolutely unanimous from business. So, uh, you know, 
you know, true, true to form, the council council have offered grants to businesses to upgrade their vehicles to taxi drivers, that type of thing. Um, so I think by and large, the way it's been implemented in Newcastle is probably the best of a bad situation. Uh, we do have the Tyne Bridge and the Central Motorway, and I think that creates issues on its own because I think quite a lot of vehicles are using that as a rat run through the heart of the city, you know, to get from one side of the city to the other. Um, so that that traffic doesn't deliver an economic impact, but delivers a negative impact in terms of our air quality. So I think that's that will always be a challenge moving forward. But uh, I think the charge will probably help at eliminating the rat run traffic. Um, and beyond that, I think our businesses seem to be adapting very well to the new regime. And it, I think, again, it's uh, the polluting vehicles are, I think, principally, if you think about 2016 onwards, won't have to pay the charge. So it's only those older, older commercial vehicles, you know, 2016 and before. So we're getting a, businesses are investing in their fleet. We're getting better buses. Um, and I think that that can only be a positive thing, I think. I'll ask you one, uh, one final question, Stephen, which is about uh, Newcastle United. Obviously, the big, uh, you know, dominant, such a dominant uh, presence, isn't it, Newcastle United in the in, in the city? And obviously, they're doing very well at the moment. Just uh, got to the Carabao Cup final, riding high in the league uh, after years of, uh, you know, not, 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 not doing quite so well. I'm, I'm interested in whether, you know, in, in terms of your your members and what you've observed, whether that makes any difference to a, uh, a city centre. I know, uh, you know, li- again, living in Leeds, when Leeds finally got back to the Premier League, uh, you know, local leaders were celebrating and saying it would have a big impact on the city. Does Newcastle United's success, is, is that good news for you? Is that good news for the businesses in, in the city centre? Well, uh, I'll give you two answers. Firstly, as a Newcastle United supporter, it's obviously amazing news. Um, I was distraught we didn't win the cup final, but hey-ho. For the city and our businesses, though, I think there's no two ways about it. It is most definitely delivering a positive economic impact for the city. Uh, You know, a good cup run, more home games... Because if you think about it, that stadium, you know, that sits like a fortress on the top of the hill of Newcastle. Um, that's a huge asset for the city that is essentially only used sort of 19 days a season, you know. Um, so the more the more matches we have at St. James's Park, the better economically um, the, the city will do. Uh, yeah, there's no two ways about that. Beyond that, though, um, obviously, we work very closely with the city's property sector and agents. And the number of inquiries we're getting in terms of inward investment, uh, we're doing really, really well. So I think that that view of Newcastle United and as a, a by association, Newcastle has been one of the major sort of European regional capital cities, I think is very good for uh, Newcastle PLC in terms of the brand and awareness. And that's and, and you notice a difference in that sort of recently as opposed to, you know, the pre-takeover, pre-success era of Newcastle? Yeah, very much so, very much so. I think we're getting attention from investment funds quite simply who weren't getting the attention of before. Uh, and I think we were, uh, what, in the last couple of months, I think we've been named 
the the top city of our size in terms of attracting foreign direct investment. Um, and I think that is that is not solely down to Newcastle United, but I think uh, the success of Newcastle United just really raises our profile and puts us on uh, you know that top tier top tier of cities if you're looking to relocate create uh, HQ or something like that so we have definitely seen an influx of investment inquiries on the on the back of that I think and it's, it's just really good for the city you know it's a great atmosphere when Newcastle United's doing well you know they do well at the weekend the city is a better place to be during the week. The office is a better environment, uh, and everybody has a bit of a spring in the step. So, um, and it's it's a rarity as well. I think it's quite hard to convey because most football stadiums are actually outside of the city centre. I can actually only think of ourselves maybe in Cardiff, where you have uh, such a big stadium right in the heart of the city centre, um, and. That really does make a difference, I think, in terms of capturing that sort of post-match and pre-match spend in the city. Uh, it really does make a difference to the city. Well, I guess that will only uh, increase if Newcastle can get into the Champions League. But I suppose that is uh, something that a few other teams might have something to say about. So we'll see what see what happens as the season progresses. But Stephen Patterson of Newcastle NE1, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you very much for having me, Rob. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts, See you next week. Bye-bye.